Hey, podcast listeners. It's Weingart here with a better late than never podcast. This is episode 149. It's on the topic of thyroid storm. But before we get to that, I just want to thank a particular listener. The listener's Grant, and I don't know if he wants me to mention his last name, so I'm not going to do it. But Grant has decided to sponsor the MCRIT show monthly with a monthly consistent donation. And I can't thank you enough. And uh, thanks for making the show possible. All right, let's get to it. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to discuss thyroid storm. This is not a topic I am an expert in. It is not a topic that I could speak much from personal experience. I've treated probably, I don't know, 10 of these in my career. Um, So I am by no means an expert. But what I've realized as I just treated my last patient about a week ago is that there is no easily available, to me at least, um, place I could go to find all the information I need to treat a thyroid storm patient. Um, because if you go to the literature or the textbooks, there's huge amounts of conflicting information um, about dosing, about regimen, and it's really frustrating. And I just wanted one place I could go and find everything I needed. So I figured I'd do this podcast. And I'm going to send this one out for post publication peer review and get some other opinions. And um, so if I'm making any mistakes, you will hear about it shortly. But I don't think I am because I took it from two very good sources. Um, I mean, actually, I took it from about 100 sources, but primarily it's from these two sources. And one of them is an article by Dr. Chiha in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. And it's a very good review published in 2013. And you can find the link to that in the show notes at mcrit.org slash 149. And then uh, there's an interview on MRAP in 2010. The uh, Swadronator interviewed a gentleman named Jonathan Lopresti, who I think is the uh, master of thyroid at USC in California. And he, um, this is his gig, and he did an interview and discussed a whole bunch of uh, pearls and little uh, tips that have been integrated into my practice, and I figured I'd put those here as well. So let's get right to it. Let's talk about diagnosing thyroid storm. And uh, what one thing Dr. Lopresti stressed in his interview and uh, in the publications that went along with it is that you have to go based on clinical suspicion. You can't wait for lab values because this is really a life-threatening disease state. And you have to start treating empirically usually um, before your TSH or other labs come back. Um, and uh, he stresses also that the treatment in a patient, it turns out not to have thyroid storm or even hyperthyroidism for that matter will not be uh, really deleterious to a patient that does not have the condition. So there's no reason not to empirically treat. The other thing is that differentiating just severe thyrotoxicosis from thyroid storm is purely a clinical diagnosis and you just have to make the call based on how the patient is presenting. So he had listed five things you need in order for it to be thyroid storm. And number one is that the patient is hyperthyroid. And you may or may not know that. You may or may not know the patient even has thyroid disease, but you should either suspect or have confirmation the patient has hyperthyroid disease. And they could be hypothyroid on exogenous thyroid supplementation if they've messed up their dosing or changed their dosing or had other mishaps that led to overdosing of their thyroid hormone. Number two, they will present with some form of fever. Um, it's, I, I don't know if it's the sine qua non, but it is certainly a key component. And uh, they, they will be febrile to some extent just due to um, the upregulation of the adrenergic effects of their body. 
their metabolism revved up. Number three, they will have some degree of altered mental status in order for it to be thyroid storm and not just thyrotoxicosis. Now, that degree of altered mental status may just be they have trouble concentrating, or it could progress all the way to coma or anything in between, but they will have some alteration of their mental status. Number four, sympathetic surge. They will have hyperadrenergic vital signs. They will have the increased temperature, the increased pulse rate, the increased blood pressure, though that latter one may be variable because these patients actually may be so revved up in their sympathetic surge that they actually go into high output cardiac failure. You know, the same one they get when they're profoundly anemic. So their heart goes so far into overdrive that they actually start failing, they start getting uh, pulmonary edema, and they can actually drop their blood pressure at that point. And we'll talk about why that's a little bit different than standard heart failure in terms of treatment, but they will have sympathetic surge. And number five, they will have a precipitating event. Something will have tipped them over the edge into thyroid storm. Now you may or may not immediately find out what that precipitating event is, but they will have some precipitating event. Now I have a list of uh, reported precipitants that have been reported in the literature and they're, they're what you'd expect. Um, surgery, whether it be thyroid surgery or not, trauma, vigorous manipulation of the thyroid gland, um, pregnancy, burns, myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolism, uh, other medications like aspirin, pseudofedrin, all sorts of crap. You can check out the list. The big one, the one you should always be cognizant of and looking for, and perhaps in the right circumstances, just empirically treating infection. Infection could be what tips over the patient to thyroid storm. So look for it, and if you find it, treat it aggressively. Now, there is a thyroid storm score out there. I, th I think there's actually a couple. The one I've always used is in the show notes, um, but it scores the patient based on how high their temperature is, how much CNS effects they have, how much gastrointestinal effects they have, uh, what the degree of tachycardia is, what the degree of CHF is, and whether there's an obvious precipitant or not, and you score them, and if their score is over 45, allegedly, then they almost surely have storm 25 to 44 suggestive, less than 25 unlikely, which is not saying they don't have hyperthyroidism, it's just saying they're not in storm territory, and they probably are at low risk of dropping dead in the immediate future. Um, I'm not sure how uh, sensitive and specific this score is. It's nice, it reminds you of the things to look for, um, but Dr. Lopresti and others have stressed that this is a clinical diagnosis. If, if you suspect it, you should treat it. All right, what labs do you send off? Well, in an ideal world, you'd have a TSH that comes back really quickly, which luckily enough at Janus General, I actually do have. I get it back within like an hour, maybe 90 minutes, which is great compared to where I used to be, which took 24 hours sometimes. Um, and if you have it, also a free T3 and a free T4 would be wonderful. If you don't have the free forms, then you, you take what you get. But those would be the ideal. Um, you're usually going to send off some blood cultures on these patients for the reasons mentioned above. Uh, chemistries and CBC, obviously. And what you might see um, on these various labs that come back is a low creatinine because they can't convert creatine to creatinine in their hyperthyroid state. You might see a high calcium, hypercalcemia that is. They will not really mount as much of a white count in the setting of infection as they would normally would do again to the hyperthyroid state. I don't know the mechanisms. I'm sure you could read about it. Um, they will get thrombocytopenic as well. So these are some lab abnormalities you could look for. But again, you're not waiting for the labs to treat um, if you have a strong suspicion. 
All right, let's talk treatment. And this is really what I wanted to have in one place so I could always go to the show notes and find it all very quickly without having to search through a thousand different places. So here's the treatment of suspected or confirmed uh, thyroid storm. Number one, you're going to block new production. And the two agents available to you are methimazole and PTU, propothiourosol. Propothio, propothiourosol. All right, there we go. I'm not even going to edit that because it's hard to say. Now, the latter, the PTU, may be preferred as it blocks the peripheral conversion of T4 to T3 in addition to preventing new production. So that's good, and that's a bonus, and I think that's what most people will be recommending. The doses for these two meds are all over the map. Everywhere you look, there will be a different dose. The doses I am giving you are from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, and they've published guidelines, so I think if you use these doses, you'd be very well supported and protected, and so that's what I'm telling you. You may have endocrinologists in your own shop who like other doses. By all means, reach out to them beforehand and say, hey, if we had a thyroid storm patient, what would you like us to use? And maybe their group would come to a consensus and distribute that to the ED and ICU. So PTU, again, probably the preferred agent, a 500 to 1,000 milligram load. Don't you love dose ranges? They're so much fun. I would say give 500 milligrams as a load and then 250 milligrams after that Q4 hours, and that's PO. Methimazole, 60 to 80 milligrams Q day divided into doses Q4 to six hours. Don't you just want to punch the people that ever recommend things by day and then tell you to divide the doses? You automatically know it's going to be painful to deal with this situation whenever that happens. The entirety of pediatric medication dosing, uh, you just want to throw into the garbage can. I'm talking to you, Andy Slois. I hate anything that's listed as Q-day divide into doses. Just give me a friggin' dose. I guess if you wanted to do the math, uh, methimazole 20 milligrams Q6 would probably be as good as any other dose because I don't know if people have great evidence on any of this, but that's number one, block new production. Number two, block thyroid hormone release. And I, I guess this won't be number two in order of progression. It's more of a... Uh, cognitive framework because you will not do this right away. You will not give iodide to these patients until uh, the literature lists 30 to 60 minutes after the PTU or methimazole, the thionamides, but I would just say wait 60 minutes and then give the iodide. And what these will do, these, may, these agents, are through the Wolf-Chikoff effect, it will block iodide binding the thyroglobulin, once the body has in the plasma critical levels of iodide. So if you overload the iodide, you will no longer have iodide binding the thyroglobulin and you will not get thyroid hormone release. There you go. So what could you use? You could use saturated solution of potassium iodide, SSKI, a medication I have familiarity with due to my erstwhile training in radiologic emergencies, which went nowhere and has served me no use, despite devoting quite a bit of time to become the local expert on radiological and nuclear emergencies. So SSKI, five drops, POQ6, or my other favorite iodide solution, Lugol solution, L-U-G-O-L-S. Lugol solution, eight drops, POQ6. You're never gonna remember these doses. You just go to the show notes. That's why they're there. Or sodium iodide, 0.5 milligrams IV Q12. I've never used the IV form. I've only used the PO form in my thyroid storm patients. 
All right, again, just to stress, do not give these right away. Do not give these until 60 minutes after the PTU or methimazole. Now, every article I've looked at mentions that in a patient who is allergic to iodide, or in a patient who will undergo radioactive iodide treatment, as if you will know that patient right up front in the eMERGE, you could give lithium instead of iodide. The dose, 300 milligrams, Q6 to Q8 hours. I'm honestly never going to do this without talking to an endocrinologist first. So if I had a situation where the patient was allergic to iodide, I would call up my endocrine friend. Since I have an hour, that's plenty of time to get back to me. Um, I could put out a page and someone will answer and I will say, is this a good idea? And they will say yes or no and I will do so accordingly. All right, next up, treat volume loss. These patients are dehydrated from huge insensible losses. They may have had diuresis as well. And even in the setting of seeming heart failure, they might have crackles in their lungs. That heart failure is high output cardiac failure, and it is not fluid overload, and these patients need fluid. And how much fluid? Well, use your clinical judgment. But um, in the Lopresti interview, uh, Stu Swadron drew out that these patients probably need three to five liters of fluid. Um, but, you know, use whatever volume monitoring type situation you use in your own um, normal practice because this is just a uh, morass that I don't want to delve into. Next up, treat sympathetic surge. Now, the prototypical agent for this is propranolol, an agent none of us use for anything else. It's pretty much a dead drug. Now, there's some nice things about this. It also blocks the peripheral conversion of T4 to T3, and that's nice. And so that's one of the reasons it's recommended. The other reason is it has both beta-1 and beta-2 effects. And there was even talk of beta-3, which, um, I don't know, it might be imaginary, it might be a unicorn, but if, if it does actually exist, it seemingly regulates the body's metabolism. And so it's good that you get that blockage as well. The dose, one milligram IV as a test dose to see if the patient has massive cardiovascular collapse because it turns out, oops, they weren't really in high output cardiac failure. They were just having that heart rate of 150 because that's what they needed to maintain their blood pressure and something else was going on like they were septic. And if they drop from that, don't give any more right now. Now, there was talk in that interview with Dr. Lopresti on MRAP that this medication only has a half-life of five minutes um, or even a duration of clinical effect of five minutes. I can't find any confirmation of that whatsoever. All of the sources I've looked at on the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of IV propranolol show a much longer period of action and period of metabolism. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have this looked at by my farm masters. Uh, probably Brian Hayes will be uh, first up on people I hit up to take a look at this, but I do not know if that is true. But they put that out as a good reason to use IV propranolol because if you mess it up, you're not gonna be too far down the pike before the patient starts coming back to you. I don't know if it's true. But let's say they did okay with that one milligram. 
Then you'll give one to two milligrams every 15 minutes until you hit a heart rate of 100. That's what you're shooting for. You're not shooting for normal. You're not shooting for 60 or 80. 100 is the number. If you get them there, stop. Because there have been cases of precipitous cardiac decline from the use of IV propranol, and the supposition is that people have gone way too far. They've given great big doses. The patients have dropped to 60, and they can't handle that. They need to drop to 100. And that 100 will be a nice balance between blocking sympathetic effects but still maintaining their cardiovascular system until it uh, retreats back from its altered state that they've been in for the period of thyroid storm. Now, in other pieces on thyroid storm, there is discussion that these patients might have developed a cardiomyopathy from being strummed so hard for so long, and they, they are the patients who may get the cardiovascular collapse. So just be careful. And if you take them too far, supposedly this will wear off quickly. If it doesn't, you may need to support these patients, which is a really sticky situation to be in, and so it's better to just go slow. Once you find out their propranolol dose, then you'll start them on a drip. There's talk of PO. I'm not doing that in the emergency situation. That could be done by my colleagues in the non-EDICU. Um, so I'm going to start them on a drip. It's going to be an IV propranolol drip. And whatever dose you needed to get them controlled, use that as your hourly dose. Maybe a slight reduction of that. This is very similar to what we do with like glucagon. You get them treated and then you make that like two-thirds of that your hourly dose or the actual dose itself your hourly dose. There is talk that your max, at least initially, should be three to five milligrams per hour and see how that goes before you start upregulating. Now, there's also an option of Esmolol. And Esmolol makes me feel safer because I know if I turn off Esmolol, the effects will be gone or most of the effects gone within 10 minutes. That's nice. The bad thing about Esmolol, the reason it's not the recommended drug, is it's a selective beta-1, meaning you're not getting any of the peripheral effects on the beta-2 and the imaginary beta-3. I'm, I'm just kidding. It probably does exist. I just don't know anything about it because it wasn't talked about when I went through physiology. Um, so that's the reason to potentially prefer propranolol. All right, next up, you're going to block the peripheral conversion and potentially shield a patient if they have coexistent adrenal insufficiency, and that means steroids. Two things have been out there. You could either use DEX, four milligrams, IV, Q6 hours, or hydrocortisone, 300 milligram IV, initial dose, and then eight hours later, 100 milligrams, and every subsequent eight hours, 100 milligrams, which feels very much like the stress dose steroids we sometimes give in sepsis and we give for patients with suspected adrenal insufficiency. Now, in every article I read on this topic, there's always mention of a oral cholecystographic radiologic agent um, that's used for HIDA scans, the HIDA scan contrast. That is the most effective, best thing in the world for blocking peripheral conversion. Um, and seemingly, it's not available in the United States anymore. But for places that do have this, um, talk to your endocrinologist first and make sure this is actually the right thing. Because I know we still do HIDA scans, but allegedly the agent I want is not available. So I don't know if they've changed the agent up. But supposedly if you have this magic unnamed agent, two grams uh, as a loading dose followed by every 24 hours, a gram is like the best thing in the world. Um, but I don't know. I have no experience with it because I've never had it. And you'll have to ask in your own country whether it's good or not with your endocrinologist. Next up. Temperature regulation. These guys are going to be profoundly hyperthermic. Um, the endocrinologists say do not aggressively cool these patients with external cooling um, because they could get further vasoconstriction, and that's really bad in these patients. You don't want that. So just let the cooling happen by treating the sympathetic surge. 
No one has mentioned whether it's bad or good to give some benzodiazepines. Um, I think in an aggressive patient, I probably try a low dose of some of the benzos. I think that's what we do in our tox cooling. I think it's probably a good idea. I have no evidence to support that. Last, but definitely not least, you need to fix the precipitating event, which in a lot of these cases means you need to treat the infection aggressively because the infection will be the precipitating event. So look for the infection, screen these patients for the normal culprits, and then if you find it treated aggressively with whatever broad-spectrum antibiotics will cover the suspected bugs. There you go. Thyroid storm, 20 minutes, all in one place, not proclaiming to be an expert on this one, and therefore, please dissect it, look through it, make sure I'm right. If you have any comments, put them in the show notes, amcrit.org slash 149. But until then, this is Scott Weingart for the Amcrit Podcast saying bye-bye.